Thank you, guys. Well, good morning. It's my privilege this morning to uh, bring the Word of God to you in Pastor Jeff's absence. Um, if you have been here for a while, you know that the regular diet of this church on a Sunday morning is expository preaching, book by book, through the Bible. Um, we Jeff just finished up a series on the pastoral epistles, and now he's going to be moving on to a study of Philemon when he returns. Um, but as you know, if you've been around, my habit is to come up and give a topical exposition from the Scripture, still basing what I have to say on what the Scripture says about a certain topic. In this case, as you can see, the spiritual discipline of fasting and prayer. It's a, uh, a topic that's often overlooked and maybe belittled um, unconsciously or maybe purposefully, but I think it, uh, just through some uh, events in, um, in my life, the last a few weeks, he just prompted me to speak on this topic. And the Bible actually has quite a bit to say, and I hope that through the preaching of the Word, you will be convinced that fasting and prayer is something that we should take seriously and even incorporate into our regular practice of spiritual disciplines. I want to start with a story. Um, God has a true story. God has blessed me with three girls, um, 10, 3, and 4 months. And for those of you who know our three-year-old, she is full of personality. And if you know her well, you know she does not stop talking. <laughs> and she is very, um, a very happy child most of the time. Um, usually when I come home from work, you know, I'll get met with a a loving and energetic response. You know, daddy's home, you know, the typical kind of thing, and um, give her a big hug, and it's great. One day this week, as I'm studying and preparing for fasting, I mean, for preaching on fasting, <coughs> one day I come home from work, and she is sitting on the couch doing school on the iPad. We do have some educational games on the iPad for her. She's doing school on the iPad, and I walk up, and I get a Hi, Dad. <laughs> so here I am, focusing on the spiritual discipline of fasting, asking myself, and I ask you, do you find your affection for God, your Father, being stifled by the stuff of this earth? That's kind of the question that I had been thinking about and dwelling on as I'm studying fasting. And I, walk, I get home to see... My daughter, whose affection is usually full and she wears it on her sleeve, her affection is stifled by something of this earth. And now I wasn't offended. She's three. You know, I understand I do the same thing sometimes, so that's um, <laughs> not my point. My point is, it was just, a, just like, whoa, <laughs> she's doing it, and it's obvious. I do that. Now, is there anything sinful with the iPad? I don't think so. Is there anything sinful with her playing it? You might disagree, but I don't think so. Um, we do limit it severely, um, just in case you're wondering. Um, but uh, it was just a very um, stark reality coming home to that, seeing the dulling effects of an iPad in this case. A couple days later, I was leaving for work this time, and she's playing on her iPad. <laughs> She doesn't always play on her iPad. This makes it sound worse than, than it really is. But it fits for the, for the context. That's, that's why I bring up only the instances where she's on her iPad. Um, not her iPad. 
Um, and so here she is doing school on the couch. I'm about ready to leave. And she's like, oh, okay, Daddy, hey, give me. So the affection's back. Like, hey, this is pretty cool. Even though she's playing on her iPad doing school, she still has that affection for me, and she's going to say goodbye and give me a big hug. So I'm like, oh, cool, all right. So I go over, and I give her a big hug, and she says, Daddy, don't mess up my school. <laughs> Great, okay. So even though she was showing affection to me, she was still overly concerned that I would mess up her school. Um, all that to say... Do you find your affection for God, your Father, being stifled by the stuff of this earth? Um, if you read the parable of the soils, I think many of us are probably, our danger is probably not the hard path, although that's a possibility. Maybe not the rocky soil, though also a possibility. I think in our culture, our cultural temptation, so to speak, is the thorny soil where it's just the distractions and cares of this life. Where am I going to pay the house bill? Where's the money going to come from? Oh, i got to go shopping. Oh, got to pick up the kit. The cares of this life. It doesn't say sin. It says the cares of this life. Choke out the word, and the plant dies. And so, um, my goal this morning is to convince you from Scripture that fasting and prayer, that fasting is a biblical spiritual discipline, that we should practice today to help relieve us of our attraction and fixation with stuff of this earth so that we might be wrapped up into the affection of our Father as we were created to be. And so I want you to show you from Scripture that fasting is a biblical spiritual discipline and to encourage you to grow in your practice of it. So it's not enough just to say, this is biblical. I also want to give you some practical tips and suggestions and just kind of talk through some of the practicalities. Um, because as you'll see, the Bible just assumes that we will be fasting. Um, and it doesn't give a whole lot of instruction on how. It does give someone how not to, which we'll talk about. So, um, getting right into, um, and I do have, there's an outline here. I'm going to follow this outline fairly closely. So if you want to follow along and take some notes, that's fine. Or if you just want to listen, most of the texts and such are in here. So a definition of fasting, depriving yourself of something, usually food, doesn't have to be food, in the Bible it's usually food, sometimes food and water, um, for a certain amount of time, for a spiritual purpose. We're talking about a very specific type of fasting. This isn't a health thing, this isn't a diet, this isn't, you're on the wrestling team, you've got to lose weight. This is fasting as a spiritual discipline. Now there are other purposes of fasting that we're not going to talk about. We're just talking about the spiritual discipline of fasting. Um, there are... Old Testament examples, lots of Old Testament examples. I'm just going to pick out a few just to kind of uh, show you the, just a smattering, just to give you the weight of, um, of the Old Testament examples of fasting. It is commanded by God in the Bible for the Jewish people, the Israelites. There is only one regular fast. It was an annual fast on the Day of Atonement, where the whole nation of Israel was to humble themselves, fast, and as a nation, come to God seeking repentance for the sins, both individual and corporate for the nation. That's the Day of Atonement. They're supposed to fast on that day. Um, Joel, in Joel 2, Joel, or God commanded the nation of Israel to embark upon a fast to show their repentance. Um, and so you see fasting connected with repentance. Joel 2.12 says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. So fasting in this context is a sign of heartfelt repentance coming back to God. 
Um, and you'll see as I go through some of these Old Testament texts, you'll see the context of fasting shows you the purposes of fasting as well. Moses fasted in Deuteronomy when he was up on the mountain with God, 40 days, 40 nights, no food and water. So we call this a miraculous fast, which isn't expected of anybody to go that long without water. Um, Ezra called for a fast um, on the nation so that it says that we might humble ourselves before God to seek from him a safe journey. So they were eager to ask God for this special request. If you skip down to verse 23, so we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. So fasting in this context is kind of like the exclamation point on the end of your prayer. God, please deliver us. It's, it's, it just shows your heart and body are in this request and that you are giving everything that you can to ask sincerely and intensely. Again, in Ezra 10.6, he was fasting personally when he heard about the faithlessness of the people back in Jerusalem, and he didn't eat bread um, or water for three days. And in Nehemiah, he does the same thing. Um, He heard about the broken down walls, and so at the bottom there, he continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven, and he goes and does a national repentance. He's speaking for the people of Israel, repenting, saying, God, please forgive us, and he's showing his sincerity through the outward physical act of fasting. Esther did the same thing. She called on all the Israelites to hold a fast. That's the context of the, maybe the familiar passage where she says, if I perish, I perish. That's in the context of the whole nation of the Israelites fasting on her behalf. So she's not, I mean, she is confident, yes, but she's confident because she's surrounded by a nation of people fasting and praying. And, and, and that, um, <coughs> that shows their intensity. Um, Daniel does the same thing. He turned, I turned my face to the Lord, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. This is when he was reading in Jeremiah that the time of their exile was 70 years. He read that. It was 70 years up. And so he's fasting and pleading with God. God, restore us to the land. And he shows his eagerness and his intensity with fasting. Um, David fasted. Now, I, I put this one in here because I don't want to just give you all these examples where people fasted and prayed and got what they asked for because it's not some magic thing to do to make God do what you want. Fasting does not guarantee an answer. Fasting doesn't guarantee anything other than that you get hungry. Fasting has a context, and if you don't do it the way the Bible says it's to, you're actually doing the opposite of what you say you might be doing. So you got to be careful. But my point in bringing up this, this is David fasting right in the middle there. Um, when the child that Uriah's wife bore to David became sick, this was part of the punishment that God um, gave to David for his unfaithfulness and his, his murder was to take the life of the child. David fasted. He did everything that was right. He fasted. He humbled himself. He prayed. He did what he could to plead with God, don't take my child. And if you see in verse 18, it says, on the seventh day, the child died. So God did not answer David's prayer, even though he was fasting with a contrite heart. We know that he repented because of Psalm 51. um, And God said no. And so sometimes, as intense as you might be, God may still say no. So keep that in mind. I'm not going to focus on that. Um, And the rest of the story goes on to say that when the child died, David got up and went about his business. I mean, that's an overstatement. He didn't keep fasting. He didn't keep mourning. He was confident in God. He knew he did everything he could, and God is sovereign. And so I'm not going to continue my fast. He said, I'm going to get up. I'm going to wash my face, 
and I'm going to go forward. He could have kept from morning, and that would have been kept fasting for morning. That would have been fine, but he didn't in this context. Fascinating story. If you want to read that more in detail later, um, Jehoshaphat, when a great multitude of, came against him, he proclaimed a fast through all of Judah. Verse four: Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. So that's another reason for fasting as a congregation to seek help from the Lord. So there's all these principles and just examples over and over again in the Old Testament of people fasting for different purposes. So fasting in the Old Testament is biblical and plain, and I don't think anybody that I know of doubts that or, or questions that or challenges that. There are New Testament examples of fasting. Not as many, but there are examples of New Testament fasting. Some people say, oh, that was for the Old Testament time. But we have Jesus now, so we don't need to fast. But I challenge you, look to see what the scripture says. <clears throat> Jesus in the wilderness fasted as an example. Now, we're not supposed to necessarily do the 40 days of fasting because we're not going to be tempted directly by the devil. We're not going to atone for anybody's sins. We're not going to have a miraculous three-year ministry. So there's a context in Jesus' life where... He's a little different than we are. Um, not that he wasn't fully human, just that his mission was different than ours. Um, and so that is a, a unique case. But also the church leaders in Antioch fasted and prayed and worshiped. And so there is an example of church leaders fasting and praying in the New Testament. And that tells me if the leaders are doing it, it should be something that the rest of us should be doing as well. Um, the first couple of verses, we're talking about the leaders of the church. Verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. This is the beginning of the missionary endeavor that started 2,000 years ago and is still going on. And here we are in Alaska, and we know what the gospel is because the Holy Spirit called out Saul and Barnabas to start a missionary endeavor. And so fasting and praying is huge for the New Testament. I mean, you can't say that fasting and praying is not in the New Testament. I mean, that's what started the missionary movement was they were fasting, praying, seeking the Lord, worshiping God, and he shows up and says, hey, I want you guys to do this. So the principle here is that fasting and worshiping and praying aligns our hearts to the will of God. And uh, that's what we see here. We also see Paul and Barnabas with prayer and fasting, they, they appointed elders. So major decisions, getting a group of people together, in this case, Paul and Barnabas, praying and fasting. You see that pattern in the New Testament. And so to say, well, it's not in the New Testament, that's not true. It's only a couple times in the New Testament, that's true. But how many times does it have to be there, given the whole way to the Old Testament, to see that this pattern continued? And I would just challenge you to admit, yeah, okay, this pattern continues. It's in the New Testament. Acts 9, Paul fasted for three days after he was converted while he was praying, and then he talks about his ministry and mentions in many fastings, or he, you know, without food, but the word is fastings. Um, and so there is precedent in the New Testament for fasting. Now, given that, Jesus takes it a step deeper, not just by example, but in actual word. Jesus, Jesus' words tell us we should be fasting. So if we're not fasting, we need to ask ourselves, why not? Do we love the iPad of the world a little bit too much? <laughs> or have we not been taught too much iPad rots your brain, which I do teach her. <laughs> what does rots your brain mean? We're working on it, but she knows that the iPad rots your brain if, you, if she does it too much. Um, and so maybe you just don't know, but I'm, again, just challenging you to consider perhaps something new. If you have fasting in your spiritual discipline, um, 
you know, routines, that's great. And I just want to encourage you to maybe talk to people about it and encourage other people how, how you can help them learn how to do it. Because a lot of people, I think, don't know how to do it. Maybe they tried and didn't go so well, and so they're like, oh, I'm not going to do that again. That was miserable. Well, if you had experience with fasting that wasn't miserable, you have an opportunity to say, hey, what did you think about the sermon? And then you can open up a door and share your positive experiences if you've had them with fasting. Um, and so fasting is expected, and we'll see this in the words of Jesus. If you have your Bible, you might want to turn over to Matthew 6. Um, I'm going to be in there for a few minutes. Um, it is up here on the screen, but I'm going to put it away in a sec. Um, I'm going to read the text, then I'm going to slow down a bit and talk about what Jesus is getting at here. He says this, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And so I want to take that just phrase by phrase and just draw out some principles from this passage. Um, First of all, the context of Matthew 6 is to beware of false motives for doing deeds of righteousness. Um, That's Matthew 6.1. It says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Now, don't miss this point. You should be practicing righteousness. (laughs) Just don't do it so that people see you. You should be doing these things that are about to follow. Just be careful of how you do them. That's kind of the lead-in to this whole section. And so you see the pattern of righteous deeds. In verse 2 of chapter 6, notice how it starts. When you give, now, I don't think anybody's going to argue that we shouldn't be giving to the needy. He's just saying, when you give to the needy, don't announce it and don't make a big deal out of it, but be humble about it. That's the point. Don't do it to be seen by men. If people see you, that's not the point. It's why are you doing it? Are you doing it to be seen by people? Then that's false, and your righteous deed is no longer righteous. It is self-righteous, hypocrisy, and detestable. But the pattern of righteous deeds is when you give, When you pray, nobody thinks that we shouldn't pray. Everybody thinks, oh yeah, of course, that's something that we should be doing on a regular basis, giving on a regular basis, praying on a regular basis, but fasting never. Why? (laughs) Because I get hungry, that's why. Um, But if you see the pattern, these are things that Jesus just expects for his followers to be doing. Giving, praying, fasting, these are things that followers of Jesus do. And there's no sense that fasting is any different than giving or praying in this context. So, if giving is a deed of righteousness and praying is a deed of righteousness that you should practice, then I think it follows that fasting is a deed of righteousness that we should be practicing and growing in and learning how to do better and finding out what the scripture says and talking to each other and fellowshipping and say, hey, I had trouble with my fast last week. Can you help me? Can you give me some advice? Read books on fasting. That fasting is something like giving and praying that is a deed of righteousness that we should be practicing. Practicing correctly, <laughs> that's very important, but practicing nonetheless. Um, and then <clears throat> he continues with the dangers of, of, of righteous deeds. Any righteous deed has the danger of being a self-righteous deed. 
So don't pick on fasting as, oh, well, if you're fasting, it's because you're self-righteous. Well, if you're reading the Bible, you're self-righteous. If you're praying, you're self-righteous. If you're here in church, you're self I mean, you can do that with any spiritual discipline. So don't pick on fasting just because maybe you don't like it or maybe it's weird or maybe you have negative images of it. Um, there are dangers of fasting. That's true, and Jesus addresses those. He says, when you fast, don't look gloomy like the hypocrites. Oh, I'm fasting today, right? They disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. So when you're fasting, don't act like you're fasting. I mean, don't, I don't think he's saying fake it. He's just saying don't announce that you're fasting. So if you're, you know, um, if people ask you, I, I had a, a roommate who, in college once who was fasting for a time, and I asked him if he wanted to go to lunch with me, and, and he's like, uh, no, 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 I'm fasting. And he's like, oh, I lost my reward. <laughs> it's like, no, 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 you missed the point. Telling me that you can't go to lunch with me because you're fasting is not this. You're not doing it to be seen by me. It doesn't say, you know, lie or try to deceive. I mean, you can say things like, no, no, I'm going to do something else. I mean, you, you can try to avoid the topic. But to say, you know, no, I'm fasting today, you know, go on without me, that's not what this verse is talking about. This verse is talking about the motive of your heart. Are you doing it to be seen by people as more holy. So be careful of your motives. If people find out, you didn't lose your reward. Um, if people find out and it tempts you to, hey, okay, okay, now we're talking about maybe, you know, losing some reward. But fight against that. Fight against that. Any spiritual discipline, that's a danger. Um, and with any spiritual discipline, there is a reward that's promised. The reward of righteous deed done righteously. So you got to be careful, again, with any righteous deed that you're doing it righteously. Matthew 6.17 goes on to say, But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. So the idea is take a bath, brush your teeth, do your hair, just like any other day, and go about your day and be happy, and don't be like, oh, I'm, I'm you know, miserable because I don't have any food today. Make an extra effort. Because sometimes when you're hungry, you get grumpy. That's just the way our bodies work. But when you're fasting... Make an extra effort to not let that happen, which actually is one of the benefits of fasting, is that you fight against that natural tendency of grumpiness because your mind is aware of it. And you're like, oh, I'm getting grumpy, but I'm fasting, so i got to fight against grumpiness so people don't suspect that I'm fasting. So it all works together. Um, and then that last bit there, your father who sees in secret will reward you. Um, we don't have time to get into it, although I would love to. The theology of reward in the Bible, people, I think, misunderstand this so much. God promises reward after reward for obedience. The Bible is filled with promises for reward. And, and, and in our culture, we, we think that doing something for the reward is somehow selfish. But uh, your father who sees in secret will reward you. Go back to um, verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward. Implied is, hey, you want your reward, don't you? Well, here, do it this way. This is how you do your deeds of righteousness, because you want the reward. That, that's just normal and natural, and the way God made us is to seek reward, and that's, that's a good thing. Now, the danger is to seek the gift and not the giver. That's idolatry, which we'll talk about in a minute. <coughs> um, so, the Father who sees in secret will reward you. So, when you're hungry, uh, you're having a hard time getting through your day, or, you know, you're just, it just hurts, 
my father sees this. He knows this. What I'm doing, it's to honor him. He knows my heart. He's going to reward me. He's going to reward you either with answered prayer. He's going to reward you with a closer relationship with him. He's going to reward you in some way that you may or may not be aware of immediately, but he will reward you. And don't forget that. Um, don't, don't do it to be seen by men because you'll get the reward. Hypocrisy works. You get the reward of men. You get the praise of men. But it's empty. <laughs> and so get the, pray, the reward that comes from God, and that's what we are designed for and built for. So fasting is expected of us based on Jesus' words. I believe that's true. <clears throat> and then in Matthew 9, go ahead and flip over a couple pages to Matthew chapter 9. It's another little discourse by Jesus on fasting. Here are just two verses. And this one um, comes actually from a question that he answers. The disciples of John, John the Baptist, come to Jesus and they say, um, verse nine, uh, chapter 9, verse 14, Then the disciples of John came to Jesus, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now, I think it's safe to assume that John's disciples were fasting properly and appropriately and honoring God. I also think it's safe to assume that the Pharisees were not honoring God by their fasting, um, but that wasn't always clear to the people because they did have such a high view of the Pharisees. The point is, John's disciples are honestly asking, we fast, Pharisees fast, Jesus, your disciples don't fast, why? Now, if you remember, John, Jesus compared himself to John in one place where he's saying, you know, John came and didn't eat, and he's not drinking, meaning he's fasting, he's got a very rugged lifestyle, but the Son of Man comes and he's eating and drinking and eating with tax collectors and sinners, and you call him a glutton and a, and a drunkard. And so we know that Jesus hung out where the sinners were, in the parties and the places where the tax collectors and sinners and, and prostitutes, and he, he lived where the people were, and the Pharisees accused him of being a partier and being a drunkard and a sluggard and all these different things. And so John's disciples are like, hey, Jesus, what's going on? How come your disciples aren't fasting? It's expected, right? Why aren't they fasting? And Jesus gives them an answer, basically saying, I'm here. That's why. And it's feast time. And the, the analogy that he gives in the first part of verse 15, he says, And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Now, in Jesus' answer, there is a purpose for fasting given. Mourning. Mourning is a purpose, or, or fasting is an expression of mourning or sadness or grief, whether that be over sin, over a loss, over tragedy. But fasting is an expression of mourning. That's one of its purposes. And he says, can the wedding guests mourn? Basically, he's saying, as long as the party's going on. No, it's a happy time. Jesus is here. He's healing people. He's teaching about the kingdom. Jesus' disciples are in the kingdom party. They can't fast. It's just it's not fitting because Jesus is here. And that's what Jesus says. It's because I'm here. And they're supposed to be enjoying the bounty of the kingdom in healings and in parties and in meeting people and watching people come into the kingdom. That's what Jesus' ministry was about. It's, 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 he's the bridegroom. It's, it's the party. It's the wedding party. But Jesus continues, but I am leaving, then they will fast. So, when Jesus was walking the earth with the disciples, it was party time. The bridegroom was here. But Jesus said the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Now, to be fair, some people interpret this as the time between his resurrection, I mean, between his death and resurrection. So, for those three days. 
Some people take this verse to mean that for three days, the disciples were to fast, but, and then the fasting's all done because the bridegroom's back and, and now it's party again. I see where they're coming from. I do think they're wrong because Jesus isn't physically present with us. The bridegroom is taken away. I mean, he's not physically here. And so I think that interpretation is a little bit short-sighted because there is a longing in the heart of a Christian for the return of their king, for the return of their Messiah, for the return of the bridegroom, and for the wedding party to be finished and, the, and to, for us to be wrapped up into the glory of God. There is this longing in the heart of every Christian that wants Jesus to come back. And the mourning in the context is not that we don't have a bridegroom. It's not that the bridegroom is dead, because he's not. He's risen. So the mourning is a certain type of mourning. It's that we got a taste of being with him, and then he left. And so now we're waiting for him to come back, and we're longing for him. It's a happy longing, but it's also a, an eager, painful longing. It's a longing, you know, of those of you in the military, you know this longing when your spouse leaves and it's a longing. You're, you're married, you're with them, you're happy, happily married, but it hurts to be distant. That's what this, I believe, is talking about. Then they will fast. And so until Jesus comes back, actually, if you remember the parable of um, the ten virgins, Jesus compares himself to the bridegroom again, and it talks about him going on a long journey. Five of them were wise and were ready. Five of them were foolish and, and weren't ready. And the five that were rise, wise and ready got to go into the party when the bridegroom came back. So Jesus calls himself the bridegroom in more than one place. Um, and so there's this eager expectation and longing of the church for the bridegroom to return. Then they will fast because things are not as they should be right now. Romans 8 talks about the groaning and the longing within all of creation for the re revealing of the sons of men, for, for our final redemption. That's all of creation is longing for that. Not, and how much more us, you know, who are believers, long for the return of Jesus. And so I take this to mean that Jesus fully expected us to be fasting in his absence. And when he returns, fasting will be gone because it's party time. But until then, fasting is still in effect. But, uh, I think I mentioned these two things, um, there's a different kind of fasting. It's not the fasting of the Old Testament where they were only looking forward to the Messiah. It's the fasting of the New Covenant where they've actually begun to experience the fullness of the kingdom, but they haven't fully experienced the fullness of the kingdom. It's that already not yet kind of thing where the New Covenant has been instituted, the um, the blood of Jesus has been shed for us. We are forgiven. We are the bride of Christ, but the, the marriage party isn't done yet. And so there's a new covenant way of fasting. Um, and Jesus tells this. Um, he gives this illustration. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. So if you're going to patch an old garment, you don't use a new piece of cloth because when the new cloth shrinks, it's going to rip the garment, and it's going to be worse than it was before. Neither is new wine, that's the new covenant language, neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst because the wine seeps into the old wineskins that have already been stretched, and they break. Um, if the skins burst and the wine is spilled, and the skins, if it is, the skins burst, the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine, 
which is this new fasting, not the old kind of fasting. There's a new kind of fasting for Christians. It's put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Fasting is preserved, but it's a new kind of fasting that is filled with rejoicing. So there's mourning because we want the king to come back, but there's rejoicing because we got a glimpse of him, and we know who he is, and we got to see that and, and experience who he is. We know Jesus through his word and through his spirit. Um, notice, if you put the new wine into the old wineskins, so if you try to do it in an Old Testament way, it's, it's going to break. So don't throw out the new wine. Just don't put it in an old wineskin. That's Jesus' point. The new wine is good. Just don't put it in an old wineskin. Put it in a new wineskin so that you can fully enjoy this new wine, this new fasting of the new covenant where we can fast with sorrow but also with joy. Um, and as I mentioned before, our salvation is bought and paid for. We are justified. When we fast, we stand righteous before God because of what Jesus Christ did to us through faith that righteousness has been applied to us and we can stand confident while we mourn for the return of our king. It's, it's an apparent paradox, but if you think about it deeply, it's not. It's, it's, it's pretty clear. Um, redemption has been accomplished and applied to us, and so there's this rejoicing. But it hasn't been fully, we don't get the fullness of it yet, and so there's this longing. So there's joy and longing, um, both. The groom has come and showed us the way. He showed us the way, and we're following the way, and we're excited to get there, but we're not at the end of the destination yet. We still have a life to live. We still have corruption to deal with. We still have tragedy and sickness and sorrow and, and just stuff of this world. We're, we're not there yet, and so there's a lot that needs to be mourned over still. That's what fasting in this context is about. We long for the return of Jesus, knowing now who he is. Um, and there's a, a verse in... in uh, Paul's writings, he says, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. I think that captures what I'm trying to say. As sorrowful, meaning we're still going to be more, uh, mourning and fasting because things aren't right yet, but we're rejoicing. And so there's that new covenant. This, this context isn't about fasting. It's about suffering, but I, I believe the principle applies. There's suffering in fasting, but it's a new kind of suffering. It, it's different because of what Jesus did. It's a new covenant fasting. Um, and and uh, I just, again, want to emphasize Jesus expected us to fast. In a new way, then they will fast. Um, <clears throat> and so, having said that, I hope you agree with me, or at least get a glimpse that fasting is a biblical, spiritual discipline that we should be practicing. Now, if you're not, hopefully this message can be a prompting by the Spirit through His Word to say, oh, I've never done that before. And I'm going to give you some helpful hints to get started. Um, or maybe you've been like, oh, no, that's not for today. And they're like, oh, maybe through the word you're being persuaded. Or maybe you're, you're of the opinion that it's not for today. And we can talk and we can have that conversation. There's a lot more that could be said, but uh, I'm trying to stay focused, <laughs> which is hard for me to do because <laughs> there's so much to be said about any given topic in the Bible. Um, there's about 75 verses that talk about fasting in the Bible, um, as many, about as many as baptism. Um, as a side note. So I want to talk a little bit on the practical side and more just kind of uh, looking at um, people throughout church history. It's been, I gave you um, passages from the Old Testament, New Testament. There's writings throughout church history of people practicing this discipline of fasting. And so I want to just 
highlight some of those things and, and show you some of the benefits of fasting. Now, there may be more than this, but here's a good place to start. Um, the benefits of fasting. And this is, is more of a definitional thing, but expresses physically a spiritual reality or a purpose. If you're grieving, that fasting shows that you are so sad that you don't want food, or that longing, that you long for the return of Jesus more than you long for food. It's a physical expression of a spiritual reality or purpose going on in your heart, whether it be an ache or a need. We saw that in the Old Testament examples. Um, there's other examples of, of it just being an act of humility before God, or desperation. We saw that in dependence. Um, there's a quote by um, Don Whitney, I can't see the very top and very bottom, that's why I keep looking back, um, by Don Whitney in a book called Spiritual Disciplines of the Christian Life. He has a chapter on fasting. That was actually our book of the month uh, about a year ago. We sold about 20 copies, so quite a few of you have this book. Um, he wrote a whole chapter on fasting. Very good, very practical. Um, and he says this, Fasting must always have a spiritual purpose, a God-centered purpose, not a self-centered one, for the Lord to bless our fast. Thoughts of food must prompt thoughts for God. They must not distract us, but instead remind us of our purpose. Rather than focusing the mind on food, we should use the desire to eat as a reminder to pray and to reconsider our purpose. So if you're fasting, you will be hungry. It will hurt. That pain is a reminder. Oh yeah. I'm fasting for a purpose, whether I'm praying for somebody or I just want to be drawn closer to God or I'm trying to defeat some besetting sin in my life. When you feel that pain, it's a reminder, this is a spiritual purpose. And so you can pray or, um, you know, that, that's the idea there. So it's, it's a physical reminder to focus God word. Um, number two benefit, intensifies spiritual desire for God. <clears throat> um, this is by a quote by John Piper, who wrote a whole book on fasting called A Hunger for God. Excellent book. I read through it this week. I highly recommend it. I don't think we have enough copies in the bookstore to, I don't know if we have any, actually. Um, we can get it on Amazon. If you talk to Calb, the bookstore guy, um, he can order us up a bunch. But if you do order them through us, please make sure you follow through and actually pick it up, because we don't want a ton of extra copies of, of any book. But uh, A Hunger for God. It's, it's a powerful book, very, very powerful book. I was tempted to try to preach all eight chapters of that book <laughs> um, this morning, <laughs> but I resisted, and I'm trying to focus. But he says this. this. Actually, this first quote is quoting Jesus. Desires for other things, there's the enemy. And the only weapon that will triumph is a deeper hunger for God. The weakness of our hunger for God is not because he's unsavory, but because we keep ourselves stuffed with other things, not even necessarily sinful things. Perhaps then, the denial of our stomach's appetite for food might express or even increase our soul's appetite for God. Hmm. I think that's worth <laughs> meditating on. Um, it increases your spiritual desire for God. As you come face to face with your physical hunger for food, if you have the mind to turn that desire Godward, you're reminded, oh, I'm supposed to desire God this much. So it increases just through focusing on it, your desire for God. Um, it sharpens prayer and confession. Um, when you've got a full stomach, <laughs> how large is your attention span? 
Not very. You want to sleep. Um, and so it sharpens prayer and confession. And again, um, from Whitney's book on spiritual disciplines, there's something about fasting that sharpens the edge of our intercessions and gives passion to our supplications. So it has frequently been used by the people of God when there's a special urgency about the concerns they lift before the Father. Or as Piper puts it, it's the exclamation point on the end of our prayer. I think that's a good way to put it as well. And he goes on to talk about confession. And as much as fasting can be an expression of grief, it is never inappropriate for fasting to be a voluntary, heartfelt part of confession. There have been a few occasions, he says, when I grieved so deeply over my sin that the words alone seemed powerless to say to God what I wanted. And though it made me no more worthy of forgiveness, that's important, fasting communicated the grief and confession my words could not. So it doesn't earn you anything from God. Get that out of your mind. No spiritual discipline earns anything from God. Jesus earned you everything from God. So everything you do, any spiritual discipline, earns you nothing. But it does, because God said it would, it opens the door to fellowship and communion and more grace in your life. It's a means of grace. Um, the next benefit is it reveals your attachments to the things of this earth, namely food in our example, but it can be a fascinating. Now this this is profound. Listen carefully to this. Prayer needs fasting for its full growth. Prayer is the one hand with which we grasp the invisible, and fasting is the other hand, the one which we let go of the visible. Think about that. <laughs> the stuff of this earth is the visible stuff. Food, technology, whatever. Whether it's sin or not, that's not the point. Stuff of this earth we hold on to so tightly. Prayer is reaching up and grabbing onto heavenly things. Fasting is letting go of earthly things. That's, that's profound. I mean, that's such a great way to think about fasting. It's training yourself to let go of things that you crave and even need. I mean, you need food. God made you that way. Why did he make you that way? I bet it's to teach you about hunger for God. Just a hunch. Um, number five, teaches your body that you are in control. It's self-control. It teaches you through practice. Um, this is from C.S. Lewis. When you are training soldiers in maneuvers, you practice in blank ammunition because you would like them to have practices before meeting the real enemy. So we must practice in abstaining from pleasures which are not in themselves wicked. If you don't abstain from pleasure, you won't be good when the time comes along. It is purely a matter of practice. So one benefit of fasting is that you teach your body, I can say no to this strong desire. Now, it's not a sin to eat, but I can say no to this desire, and it's very strong. So if you practice saying no to strong desires that are healthy desires, when unhealthy desires come, you know how to say no to strong desires. It's a practice. It's a spiritual discipline. This, to me, it's, it's clear that this is something that we need to think about, consider, and grow in this area of our spiritual life. Um, the Father will reward you. We already talked about that. Um, again, from Piper, God rewards fasting because fasting expresses the cry of the heart that nothing on earth can satisfy our souls besides God. So that could be a prayer. When you feel that hunger, God, you alone satisfy. Jesus, quoting Deuteronomy, said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So there's your verse whenever you're hungry. Man shall not live by bread alone. God, help me to love your word more. Help me to love you more. It's just a reminder and a practice to turn your heart towards God. 
and I were talking about this as well, if someone finds out, you have not lost the benefit. <laughs> so don't overthink that, um, that passage. <clears throat> so, I do believe fasting is biblical. We should be doing it. There are benefits. There are probably more than what I listed. But there are objections. And I want to quickly kind of run through these. Some people, this used to be me, I used to think, it's not for me. I have to eat. If I don't eat, it hurts and I can't focus. I used to be that until, I can't remember when it was in my life, but I would miss a meal for something that I really cared about. And, I'd, and I survived and I made it till the next meal. And, and after these a few occasions of missing a meal for something that I was intensely focused on, I thought, hmm, maybe I can fast intentionally in the spiritual discipline sort of way. And so... Um, I'm, not, I'm not an expert at fasting by any means. I've, I've done it a few times. Um, part of why I wanted to preach this, like I said, God laid it on my heart. I want to get into this practice, and I want to, to develop it more fully, as I'm telling you. I, I try to put myself at the front of the line whenever I get to preach to an audience, and that's very much the case here. But uh, <clears throat> I learned that I don't have to eat <laughs> for a meal or for a day or for a couple of days. Um, that's not true. Um, and so I would challenge you to consider trying it. <laughs> if you think, I can't do it. I have to eat. I just get hungry. I get grumpy. I get, okay, I hear you. I used to feel the exact same way. Try it and see, well, I tried it before and it didn't work. Okay, now that you've heard this message, <laughs> try it again. <laughs> and come talk to me. Talk to other people who have done it and have, and have had success. Read Hunger for God. Read that chapter in Spiritual Disciplines on, on fasting. If, if I can convince you that it's important, maybe it'll, it'll be a little crack in your armor of resisting um, to say, okay, maybe I'll read a book about it. Maybe I'll talk to you about it. Maybe I'll have a conversation at lunch about it, at least. So at least do that. Um, it was hard to prepare for this. I was hungry a lot this week. <laughs> um, a common objection is you're too busy. We're very busy. I get that too. But think about it. One meal a week, skipping a breakfast, skipping a lunch. Think about it this way, skipping a lunch to get work done. Have you ever done that? How about skipping a lunch to spend some extra time in prayer? Priorities are important. I get busyness, um, and it may be that for now you're too busy. And you know what? We're not legalists here. We, this is a spiritual discipline that is offered to you for your enjoyment. And if you choose not to do it, I would challenge you to... To look at the Bible and see what it has to say, but maybe for now you are too busy if you're starting a new business or, or, or things are really crazy at home with all the kids. But on the other hand, if you're starting a business or if you're so bit, isn't that all the more need for God in your life? <laughs> so analyze your excuses. Some may be valid and some may be not. <laughs> so just test yourself. Consider planning it into your schedule. If you're, if you're super busy, think, think through your week. Is there one morning of the week where I'm not as busy as the others, where I could get the kids up and have them do whatever and just kind of remove myself from the breakfast table. Is there a lunch? Is, just try to be creative. Plan it into your schedule or it's not going to happen. So think about your week. Think about your month. Is there a time where I could skip one meal? That's fasting. That's honoring this principle. Um, and consider planning it into your schedule. Not for Christians today. We talked about that already. I don't believe that's true. It's legalistic and breeds self-righteousness. We also talked about that. Which spiritual activity doesn't carry this danger? Stop using that as an excuse. Deal with pride in your heart and do what the Bible says. I mean, any spiritual discipline falls into that category. 
I can't because of health reasons, then don't. <laughs> All right, again, this isn't some legalistic thing that you have to do if you want to be spiritual. It's not what I'm saying. I am saying if you do this, this is how a, a strategy that God has given for us to grow. But if for whatever health reason you can't, that's fine. Consider fasting from something else. Technology, chocolate. You pick whatever you really love that really attaches you to this earth and give it up for a month or a week or a day. Again, flexibility here. Leading of the Spirit. Um, just be, be sensitive to the leading of the Spirit through the Word. Um, helpful hints in preparation. Plan ahead. I talked about that already. Um, adjust if necessary and if possible. And if it's not possible, you know what? Maybe next week, maybe next month. Just have an, an eye and a mind towards incorporating this into your, um, your habit of, of spiritual disciplines. Start small, maybe one meal, maybe two meals. If you think about it, if you eat dinner on Monday night and you skip Tuesday breakfast and lunch and have dinner Tuesday night, you've fasted for 24 hours. I mean, you have to end dinner, you know, if you want to be exactly 24, but um, you've, you fasted for a day by skipping two meals. So, I mean, that's, if you think about it, it's like, oh, wow, I guess I, that wouldn't be so hard. Um, I think skipping that third meal and dinner, and now we're talking, you know, that's, that's pretty serious self-discipline, which you don't want to get proud about because it's very easy to do. But start small, one meal. Just try it, see how it goes. Um, don't expect any quick fix. If you fast for one meal, don't, oh, yes, I, I know what C.S. Lewis is talking about. I have conquered my, no, no, no. This is a practice over and over and over again. You develop this habit. This start small is not intended for you to stay small. It's intended to start small. One meal, maybe two meals in a day, or maybe one whole day. Maybe if you can think about in, in your year, are there, is there a time where you can get away for three days and fast? You know, just be creative and, and try to incorporate this into your spiritual life. Consider making it a regular practice. Maybe once a week, skip a lunch. Maybe once a week, skip breakfast and lunch. Again, try to figure out your, day, your week. Maybe is there a day? I would suggest not doing it on a day where like Sunday where you're supposed to be eating and fellowshipping, you know, that's, we're supposed to be fellowshipping, having a good time together, and, and, and fasting on a Sunday might not be a, a, a best idea, but if you feel God's leading you to it, absolutely, you know, again, we're, we're not talking rules here, we're just talking principles, um, and this, making it a regular practice, that's where the long-term discipline and long-term growth happens. With any exercise routine, that's how it works. Be prepared with a topic to pray about, maybe a friend in need, a besetting sin that you're dealing with God with, a conflict at work, a wayward child, your heart's longing for God. One of those things will always be there. So um, pick one. Every time you feel hungry, think, oh yeah, I'm going to pray for that person. Um, it, can be, it can be like that. It can be a natural, normal part of your day. Um, read John Piper, Hunger for God. Highly recommend it. A lot of good stuff. I don't have time to go through these 15 things. <laughs> um, you can read it yourself. Um, I do want to end with, um, they're, they're just helpful hints during a fast to direct your mind and overcome the hunger. I will say one thing about number seven. Remind yourself <laughs> that self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. So you're three quarters of, your, of the way through your fast, and you're like, oh, this hurts really bad. I'm going to fight in the power of my flesh not to eat. You're sinning. <laughs> Don't eat. Fix your heart and say, no, self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. God led me into this fast through promptings. God will get me through this in the power of his Spirit. You're resting on his Spirit to get you through, not your willpower. This is not to increase your willpower. This is to increase the Spirit's power in your life. The fruit of the Spirit 
is self-control, not the fruit of yourself. That's the hip- hypocritical, self-righteous. Again, the whole message could be there, but um, we're going on. <laughs> I've got a bunch of quotes from people throughout church history. I'm going to skip as well, but this is a good one. Devote thyself to fasting and prayer, but not beyond measure, lest thou destroy thyself. <laughs> so again, warning, be careful. Any spiritual discipline, pride can destroy you. Be careful. Um, and then I'll, I'll end on this one um, from Cyril of Jerusalem in the 300s. Be not henceforth a viper, but as thou hast been formerly a viper's brood, put off, saith he, the slough of thy former sinful life. For every serpent creeps into a hole and casts its old slough, that means it sheds its skin, and having rubbed off the old skin, grows young again in body. In like manner, enter thou also through the straight and narrow gate. Rub off thy former self by fasting and drive out that which is destroying thee. So when you're hungry and in pain, think of yourself as a snake in a hole rubbing off that coat that is old and ah, self-control. Okay, I made it. I'm new. Through the power of the Spirit, I endured. I love that picture of the snake in the hole rubbing its skin off. and It's hot up here anyway. Um, <laughs> so, so lots of quotes, lots of people. Calvin Edwards, um, Luther, even people you don't know like Adebert de Vogue and Wesley Duell. It's all over the place in Christian history. Fasting is important. So do you find that the stuff of this world diminishes your affection for your father? If you're honest, you're going to say yes. Your love for the Lord, your passion for the Spirit. That's the fight of the Christian life, the fight of faith. So consider, I challenge you, to consider fasting with your praying, adding this discipline into your life if it's not there already. It's biblical, it's expected, and it's doable in the power of the Spirit. Let me close um, in prayer. Father, I thank you for your word, which is clear to us. And I do pray that the weight of your word will impress upon us this need And give us a desire to honor you through our fasting and through adding fasting into our spiritual disciplines. Give us a heart for you, a hunger for you. May we be a church that hungers for you individually and corporately as a body, that we would be willing to lay aside earthly treasures, earthly things that are sinful or not to run hard after you. I pray this for each and every one of us in here. Thank you for your word and thank you for your spirit. Help us to love you more. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen.